Grace has been super thankful of just all of the administrators and teachers that have made that a great experience. And so as we as a community kind of reenter the season of school, it's such a powerful reminder and opportunity for us to not just pray for everything that is going into education happening right now this morning, but also as we get back into the rhythm of our weeks and we're carving out those times of prayer in our own lives Monday through Saturday, this is a place that we can remember to go back and pray and ask that was school being such a formational part of our communities as a whole now that God would continue to protect our kids and give them a vision for who he's called them to be and provide the right relationships and guard against what could be dangerous. And honestly, for the teachers who are doing more than just teaching, they're really making disciples and forming little hearts, whether they would call it that or not. That's what's happening. And so just such a wonderful time for us to be able to do that. Listen, I think this is a cool week to talk about the ministry fair because as we're starting to wrap up First Peter, he's going to really zoom in on the church. And so today in chapter 5, as we've talked about how we can be a people of joy in an uncertain world, Peter is going to talk to the church as a whole. And so organizationally, he's going to look at the church and say, as you prepare to be a place that gives shelter and cultivates joy in the midst of uncertainty, here are some instructions that you have to follow. Uh, we, uh, as a family, are not car people. I don't know if you're a car person. I don't mean like that you like them. I mean that you understand them. And so a couple of days ago, my wife called me and said, hey, my car won't start, which again, I'm not the guy to call. Um, I can pray for you over the phone. Like literally, that's the extent of what I can do in that situation. I said, okay, it's good to know. Um, That helps me right now. Tell me more, which I don't know why I asked her to tell me more. Like, oh yeah, that must be the flange. Like, I don't know. I'm like, but tell me more. So she starts sending me pictures of like um, parts of the engine and these are the lights that are on and she knows more than I do honestly about cars and construction and so I said that that looks like maybe we should take it to somebody uh, <laughs> and the reason that I knew that is because there were these lights on the dashboard <laughs> right I don't know looking at the engine what's happening um, I don't think anybody really does I think the mechanics just make it up as they go but the warning lights The warning lights tell me that something's not working the way that it should. It's super helpful because I see this picture and I say, oh, the charging system isn't working. That sounds expensive. The light told me that. That's really what Peter's doing here in chapter 5 is he's giving us these checkpoints that really serve as warning lights on the health of our churches. And so we're going to see these three checkpoints to a joyful community. Unfortunately for a lot of us, when we think about people that are joyful and we think about the church, those aren't always ideas that run parallel to one another, right? Because a lot of us have stories where the church has done the opposite of cultivate joy. Unfortunately, a A lot of us have stories where the church has inflicted pain or suffering and we have a massive amount of hurt and trauma because of bad experiences in a church. And listen, as a church, we want to be a place that is obedient to who God has called us to be and how we love the people around us. And the church isn't me. It isn't the people on our staff. The church is all of us. 
And so for all of us to take seriously the call that God has put on us to make this a place where we truly are loved, we want to be aware of these checkpoints. We want to ask ourselves, how are we doing? We want to examine, are there some lights that are blinking that we maybe need to stop and look at? And so we're going to see these three checkpoints, and we're going to look and see how God has called us to be a healthy community. We desperately want to be a community that loves God and loves people. When you leave here every Sunday, you are told that you're loved. That's more than a trendy catchphrase that we found at a church growth conference. That really is the heart that we want to reflect and impute on you as members and people that are around this body. We want you to feel the love of God and we want you to feel the love of your brothers and sisters in Christ that are sitting in this room with you. So the reason we want to be excited about ministry fair goes far beyond this being like a volunteer drive, okay? We don't want you to volunteer. I'm going to be honest, like, I don't want you to volunteer here. I do want you to joyfully serve here and love the people that God has brought in here. The reason that we have ministries and programs, you understand that's just the organizational framework that sets us free to love one another because we live in a highly segmented society, right? Like we all have calendars and schedules. That, that's why it's organized like this. At the end of the day, we're serving because that is an opportunity for us to love people in specific ways at specific times. This is not a village where we just happen to run into each other down by the river anymore, right? We, we need to meet up in places and times because that's how we order our lives. And so let's jump in to these checkpoints. The first one is faithful shepherds. So in chapter 5, verse 1, he's going to start by talking to the leaders of the church. And this isn't an accident because I don't know that a leader or a leadership team by themselves has ever made an organization good and successful. I don't believe that they have. Because successful organizations are made up of leaders and the right people following them. And specifically in the context of a church, God's grace and God moving. Leaders by themselves have never made an organization successful. But leaders by themselves have often made organizations unhealthy, toxic, and dangerous. So it is important that we talk to the leaders of an organization first because they have the power to ruin it uniquely, right? Leadership is weighty and a big deal. God takes this seriously, so he starts there. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, Listen, as your fellow elder, also as an apostle with some authority, because I saw Jesus suffer, and just as a fellow Christian who's going to have eternal life with you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not, shame, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So let's look at the instructions he just gave to the shepherds or elders of the church. The first thing that he calls them to do is to shepherd the flock. And that's important because, and this isn't our fault, we can't help this, this is just a reality of following Christ. Every church everywhere is going to reflect the shape and values of the time and culture that it exists in. 
You can't do anything to change that. The church in 21st century America is going to reflect some shape and some values of 21st century America. Why? Because that is the context that we live in. We can't escape that. A church in 15th century North Africa is going to reflect something of the shape and culture and values of 15th century North Africa. There's just a drift that is going to happen. What we want to do as faithful followers of Christ is in the midst of that time and culture that we live in, allow scripture to be the voice and authority that guides how we implement the truth of the gospel in the culture that we live in. So, 21st century American organization. We tend to reflect the values of the culture we live in. What are the values of 21st century American culture, specifically in organizations? We want effectiveness. We want success. We want metrics. We want leadership. So when you hear about leadership, a lot of times what people want to go to is the hard skills and talent. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, shepherds, make sure that you are doing your job really well. Make sure that you have really good music. Make sure that your sermons are very entertaining. Make sure that you've got the right amount of smoke in the auditorium. Make sure your marketing is on. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. What does it say? Shepherd the flock well. He says, your chief job as a leader is to shepherd and love the people that God's entrusted you. And so here at RCC, when we talk about elders, the men leading this church, their primary job is to shepherd in love. It's not to get you to buy into Amway for Jesus Pyramid Scheme where you help us build this massive brand. It's not to optimize your life so you can live the American dream. It's, it's not to make you do what we want you to do or vote the way that we think you should vote. That's not our job. Our primary job as leaders is to faithfully shepherd and love you. And we have a model for that and how Jesus faithfully shepherded and loved the people in his earthly ministry. And so when you're looking for a church, because for some of you guys, like this isn't your last church. Frankly, statistically for most of us, this isn't our last church, right? So whether you're a high school student and you're going to be off at college one day looking for a church, if you're college and young adult and you're going somewhere else one day and you're looking for a church, one of the key checkpoints or indicators of a healthy church is leadership that shepherds and loves their people. And so our elders, man, we want to make sure that they know you. Say we, I'm one of you, I guess. This is, it's, we know you, that we are praying for you, that we show up when you're hurting, that we're available when you have a need, that we are directing this place towards obedience to Jesus. It says faithfully shepherd your people. And remember what's happening in these people's lives, in this burgeoning church here that he's writing to, is there's a lot of persecution happening. People are being hurt. It's a dangerous time for this church. He's saying you have to shepherd those people well because they're hurting. Our people are hurting. We're hurting. The job of an elder is to faithfully shepherd you. And so we make sure that you are contacted by elders here. We make sure that you are prayed for. Even if you don't know it, you are prayed for every Sunday morning at nine o'clock by our elders in this building that God would continue to show you who he is, that you would find joy in following him here, that you would be protected from sin. We have elders that are going to pursue relationship 
They're going to help when you are in a place of need. That's the role of an elder. And he warns against kind of some, some places. And we don't like sweep this under the rug and hide it and say, no, 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 don't worry about that. This is the standard that he holds us to. Look at the warnings that he gives them. These are kind of those warning lights where if this is happening, things are basically, don't serve under compulsion. What does that mean? He said, basically, if you don't want to be an elder, don't be an elder. And the good news, I can tell you, none of the elders are serving here because they feel like they have to, right? Nobody held a gun to Brick's head and said, you better show up on Saturday twice a month, Brick, or else. Nobody did that. It's because they truly feel God's calling in their life. Compulsory service or giving, by the way, out of guilt or a thought that this might make God love me more is not healthy. It's not healthy. Anybody serving because they have a reason beyond God calling them to do, that's not going to end well. It leads to burnout and resentment or, or moralistic legalism of if I do this, then that's not what this is about. He's saying elders don't serve because you feel like you have to. And this is probably a little bit more weighty to these people because usually the first people that got killed um, in persecution were the elders. So he's saying, listen, what you're signing up for is not easy. It's difficult. It's costly. Don't do it if you think you have to because it's going to cost you. So he's saying don't serve under compulsion. Then he says, you know, his next warning, that next little warning light there, he says, don't do it for shameful gain. 90% of the time when you turn on the news or fire up the internet and you see a bad story about a pastor or church leader in the newspaper, it's about money or sex, right? It's usually driven by somewhere, somehow, something's happened where the goal of leadership is for shameful gain or enrichment. That, oh, I'm going to do this for what I can get out of it. And let's be honest, if you look around American evangelicalism, there is the opportunity for people to use that platform to make money. There just is. That, that is the reality that we live in, okay? Scripture says pay your pastor. That's not what this is talking about. This is saying that if your goal in serving and leading a church is what you are going to get out of it financially, you are going to wreck the church that you're serving. And so we are a place that has financial accountability and transparency. We talk to you about numbers. We talk to you about where money is going. There's no secrets here. There's no private jets here. Nobody's got secret homes. Nobody has more than one, I don't think. But listen, we're not a place where we are doing this for shameful gain. Because when that starts to happen, the shepherd stops seeing the sheep as souls to care for, and they start seeing them as resources to devour. And that is a dangerous place to be. And so as leaders, there is a call to not do this for what you get out of it. That's kind of the world's model of leadership, though. Like, you talk to most people, why do you want to be a CEO? Why do you want to be a doctor? Why do you want to be a lawyer? I want to make a lot of money, right? Like, at the end of the day, for a lot of those people, not all of them, Greg, I know not you, but for a lot of those people, you know, the reason that they get into that is because of what they get out of it. The kingdom of God is upside down. We, we don't serve for what we get out of it. We serve because we love God and he's called us. He said, you don't serve for shameful gain. And then the last one is one that unfortunately we've also seen really kind of bubble up recently in evangelical culture. He says, don't do it as domineering over those who are in your charge. I am not the boss of this church, regardless of what my seven-year-old might think. I'm not the boss of this church, right? The elders are not the boss of this church. We are the shepherds serving Jesus Christ and a sovereign triune God who sits in authority over this church as his bride. 
time and time again, whether it's the, the Mars Hill podcast or some of what's come out around the SBC or some of what you see just kind of proliferating a lot of the fringes and even not fringes of evangelicalism right now are, are these really tragic situations where sometimes starting with good intention, church leadership is lording over the people that it's supposed to serve. And in the name of unity or mission or whatever, they stop shepherding and start domineering. Our job as elders is not to boss you around and control you. Um, that, that never ends well, right? That's not what we do. Our job is to shepherd. And so when you're looking at those checkpoints in church leadership, elders are called to lead and protect and call out sin, absolutely. But they're never called to domineer or bulldoze. They're never called to treat people as less than human. They're never called to build a brand or demean. That's not the call of church leadership. And it's really important it's really important that we understand this checkpoint of faithful shepherds because when leadership isn't faithful, the ramifications of that are felt widely throughout a community, and we want to be a church that's faithful. And our natural drift as people is going to be towards some of our weak points. And so as elders, there's accountability. You know, there's heart checks. There's opportunities for people to check in. We don't ever want to do anything in secret. Where you have concerns or questions, this is a place where you can come and ask those questions. Hey, help me understand this. Or am I missing something? Or I just, I'm not sure about this. We, we're, we're not a leadership team that's going to shy away from questions and concerns. We don't want to do that. We want to be open to hear and listen. Now, does that always mean, hey, I think it should be this way, it better be this way? That doesn't always mean that's going to happen. Don't, don't misunderstand that. But where there's questions, like this is a place where it's safe to come just ask questions and explore. We don't ever want to be this distant group of people in the cloudy, smoke-filled room in the back pulling strings. It's not a biblical model of leadership. And so we want to be a church that is led by faithful shepherds, and we desire to be faithful shepherds. And this is something that we're always going to hold up when Scripture teaches it, because it's our role, is to faithfully shepherd the people of this church. And so here's the second checkpoint that we're going to look at. It's, it's humble hearts. Right? Can, you, can you talk about what the elders have to do again? I don't like that one, right? Humility is not a natural gravitational pull of the human heart, but especially not in our culture, or theirs either. And so in verse 6, um, excuse me, in verse 5, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the almighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So this is interesting because you see a couple of things. The first thing he does is he addresses the younger people or, or the people who aren't elders. And he says, be subject to the elders trust their leadership, submit yourself to their leadership, but then he calls them to be humble. And this is where sometimes people don't like to highlight one of these words. He doesn't say people that are subject to the elders be humble. That's not what he says. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. Who clothes themselves with humility? Who is it? All of you clothe yourselves with humility. Humility isn't just clothing that's worn by the people who aren't leading. It really is modeled by the people that are. He says, you have to clothe yourselves with humility. Every time, every, every time there's been church hurt, it has always been driven by a lack of humility. 
It's always been driven by a lack of humility. Where hearts aren't humble, we tend to cling to areas of pride. And it's interesting if you read this, there's a juxtaposition here. When you first read it, it doesn't make sense that he talks about this because he's talking about being humble, right? He says, be humble, clothe yourselves with humility. You need to be humble. Then look at what he says. It's really, it's, it's almost like he, he adds it in. It's like, wait, did he, does this go here? This doesn't seem like it fits. He says in verse seven, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What does casting your anxiety on God have to do with your humility? It's really strange because he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he may exalt you. What, what does anxiety have to do with humility? And I, I don't mean, hear me, I don't mean anxiety in the clinical term, okay? Because a lot of times there's been abuse that's happened where, you know, hey, if you just pray, you won't be anxious anymore. Listen, mental health professionals are a gift of God and where there's clinical anxiety, we should embrace the common grace that we have there. I don't believe that's the kind of anxiety he's talking about here. I think he's talking about your stress, your worries, um, the stuff that just kind of gets you spun up when you think about it, right? And so he says, cast your anxiety on God after you clothe yourself in humility. Here's the connection. When you think about our pride, when you think about where you're prideful, where I'm prideful, our pride is always a reflection of a place of security we have. It's not to say you can't be insecure and prideful. That's not what I mean. Where we're prideful or want to be prideful are usually in areas that we believe provide us comfort and security. So the reason humility was a bit of a challenge in the first century, aside from just our hearts, was because it was a highly stratified society. And we saw that actually when we looked at servants and masters, husbands and wives. Do you remember that, pas that passage? There was a very strict household societal code where there were people on top and there were people on the bottom. Social mobility was not an option. Um, you just were where you were and then you died. And so because of that, you were expected to live into the role that society had been given you. And if you were on top, if you had power, you exercised the power that you had. And for many people, power was something they desired because it's what kept you safe, right? The people on top generally didn't worry about where their next meal was coming from. Um, they didn't generally worry about if they were going to have somebody to be with romantically, right? They didn't generally worry about their safety. They didn't generally worry about any whim or desire they might have because if you were on top, you had the ability to walk in a privilege that other people didn't have. And so their pride in that or, or stepping out of that into humility would be scary because you're giving up a lot of the places of security that you have. I don't think we're a lot different. And we're prideful about a lot of different things. And I think we're, we're really taught this and catechized this by our culture in a way that we don't always even realize. We're encouraged to emphasize and own what we're good at. And that's not 100% bad, but think about where this goes sideways. Think about where what we like to be proud about becomes a functional savior for us or makes us better than other people. It prevents us from wanting to serve them. It's usually because there's some security. If I'm better than other people, there's some security in me being able to leverage and get my way because I know better. I have more talent, I'm smarter, I have more ability. So if we have a conflict, I can tell you that I'm gonna get the security of my way because I'm better than you. If we're prideful in our stuff, I don't really need to worry about generosity or depending on the Lord because I have pride in my stuff and my status. People are going to look at me and love me and want to be like me because of my stuff. And I find pride and security in that, right? And so, so often what our pride is revealing of these places that we find security, it also serves as a barrier, 
Because if I'm prideful, if I don't walk in humility, when there's conflict, which is usually where church hurt comes from, then I'm not going to be interested in forgiveness. I'm not going to be interested in serving people. I'm not going to be interested in anything other than getting what I want when I want because I know I'm right or because I know I deserve it. And so... For us to clothe ourselves in humility is going to require us casting some anxieties on the Lord because the biggest barrier to us clothing ourselves in humility is the fear we have of what it might cost us. And think about the model of Christ in this. For him to come to earth and die on the cross, think about what he stepped out of. Think about him stepping out of literally being in heaven. He stepped out of the power and authority that he held over everything. He didn't need God to send angels to save him, right? Like when Satan's tempting him in the desert, he could have done that himself. He willingly stepped out of the power and identity that was rightly his so that he could serve and love people. And it cost him. When we clothe ourselves with humility, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us always getting our way. It's going to cost us getting to be right. It's going to cost us getting what we feel like we deserve. It's going to maybe cost us being the center of attention. But scripture says it's worth it because when we clothe ourselves in humility, we are free to love and serve the people that God's put around us. And the anchor of our soul and the joy that is expressed through being a part of community where people willingly step out of what they could claim as a right to love and serve people surpasses anything that you can lose by hanging on to some of those areas of pride that stop you from being humble. And so as a community here at RC, we have to ask ourselves, how are we clothing ourselves in humility? Like, what are you scared of losing? If you were to write down, if I was to clothe myself in humility, it might cost me blank. What's the first word that goes in that blank? What are you terrified of losing? Is it maybe a facade of how people might perceive you? Um, Is it a fear of if I did this, then I wouldn't be accepted? Is it, but what if I don't get my way? Because I feel very strongly this is the way that this should look. Um, Is it I might have to forgive that person and apologize? I, I I don't know. I don't know. For me, I think there's this idea of humility requires, for me in my heart, humility requires that I might not, I might not be able to totally control and dictate everything that happens. Because if I'm serving in humility, I'm, I'm stepping out of the driver's seat and I'm responding, right? And I'm being vulnerable and I'm connecting with people. And if that happens, I might lose some control. And if I lose control, then I might not be able to control everything. And then what, what, what might happen if I'm not in control? I don't know, but it's not good. I need to be in control, right? And so for me, listen, it is terrifying. It is terrifying to fully step into a place of service because it might mean I'm not as in control of everything as I'd like to be. And I just need to be in control. Why? I don't know, but I just know it's better when I am, right? Can you, can you relate to that? I'm glad somebody's laughing. It's not just me, right? I just need to be. And so it is terrifying to think about letting go. But when we let go, God promises that we do find something better. He promises that we find that we are in a place where we're freely serving people. And so as we, as we go into ministry fair, and we, I don't want to use the word volunteering. Um, don't change it if it's, that's not what I mean. I'm just like in your mind, okay? <laughs> in your mind. Don't think about it as volunteering. Truly ask yourself the question. Forget the categories that are in the booklet for a second, although those are helpful at some point. But just right now in your heart, I just want you to ask yourself, what would it look like 
for you to fully clothe yourself in humility and love and serve the people that God's put in your life. Don't think about ministry or time frame or this. Just on a blank canvas, what would it look like if you just radically humbled yourself and loved and served the people around you? Where would that happen? How would you do it? Who would they be? What would you do? And then think about what it would be like to be a part of a community where we're just openly loving and serving people. We're in humility. We don't think about our way or what we want or what we need. And, and we frankly don't have to because the people around us are thinking about that for us. Somebody goes, that sounds like communism. No, 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 it's fine. It's not. I promised. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, guys. It's been a bit of a stressful week. That one slipped out. Um, <laughs> we want to be people with humble hearts. We want to be people that just love each other. And we're not going to do it perfectly, and we're going to need to give each other grace. But we want to give people, we just want to go to people and say, God, I want to step out of myself and be humble so that I can love the people that you have put in my life. Let's look at this last one. It's a sober awareness. It's a sober awareness. So, in verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he ends by saying your suffering is worth it because you will have this eternal peace, reign, and reward in Jesus Christ. God is going to establish, confirm, strengthen, and restore you. That is going to happen. He says in the meantime, endure persecution well. He says everybody is being persecuted for the gospel. It's not just you. And so he ends by pointing them to the promise that God has for them eternally. And that's why we can have this joy is because we know that's coming. He starts by giving some instruction on what to do in the meantime. He says, be aware because there is evil. Satan is looking to destroy God's church. He is after people. He says, be aware of that. Have an awareness of who your enemy is. And there's a couple of different layers of that for these people because they're being persecuted. Now, in some ways, this is a subtle reminder of who their enemy is. It's really hard to, to love the people that are persecuting you. I think there might be a subtle reminder to them of saying, listen, it's, it's not the people that are persecuting you that are behind this. It's actually Satan. There's a bigger enemy. There's a bigger force of evil in the world. I think the second layer of this is just a reminder that there is evil in the world. And for these people, they didn't need like a real accurate reminder of that. They, they lived in a very rated R world anyways. Just back then, they hadn't, it, there was, it was a little less soft than it is now. So be like, that's right. No, 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 it's not better. Um... <laughs> But they also lived in a world where they were being murdered for their faith. And so is evil after you? Well, if you're being murdered in your, for your faith, you don't really wonder if evil's real. For us, I think it's a different kind of reminder because we live in a world where if we're not careful, we can fall into the impression that evil's not real. And there's multiple reasons for this. Part of it is we live in a post-enlightenment world. Evil isn't real. That's just magic and superstition. We don't believe that anymore. We have science right? The other part of it is we can insulate ourselves from the perceived effects of evil, at least negatively. For the most part, people aren't trying to actively murder anybody in this room. So as you know, my in-laws, man, I don't know, we got to go there on Thanksgiving, but more likely than not, no one's actively trying to murder you. No one is actively persecuting you for your faith. 
no one is probably actively trying to hurt you. So it's easy to be like, man, evil's not real. And we kind of play with it. And we even can make evil entertaining a little bit. And it can kind of masquerade as our friend. It's kind of like, listen, have you ever been around something that's dangerous, but you just get numb to it? So when we were moving in, I was trying to change our dryer out and it didn't have the right, you know how there's different plugs for dryers? Like some of them are four, some of them are three. The way I'm describing this for some of you, you're like, I already see that this is going to end bad. Um, grew up single mom uh, in, in, in a fairly urban area. It's like, I don't know how to do a lot of this stuff. And so I'm looking at it and I'm like, this plug doesn't fit. It's okay. I've got this one. I think it fits. Let me make sure. And, and I'm not thinking about the reality of electricity right now. I just want to see if the plug fits. And I forgot that at the other end of this plug that's not attached, there's these three metal prongs. And the way electricity works, science lesson, is metal conducts it and it travels through metal. Um, so as I plug it in, I, I forget that these three metal prongs are touching the metal dryer. And so as soon as I plug in, there's like an explosion. My shirt, my shirt singed. Um, I've got like the cartoon hair, I think, with some smoke coming off me. I'm like, well, I could have died there, right? But here, here's what happened. I was very casual with something that was very dangerous. It was like, don't ever come help me at my house. Please, just send food. <laughs> we do the same thing with evil because we've been lulled into this belief that it's not that dangerous. And I think a sober awareness of evil is a healthy checkpoint for us. And I don't mean like you're scared of the devil. You don't go outside or, you know, oh man, I stubbed my toe. The devil was in the floorboard. Like he probably wasn't, but we do want to be aware that some of what we fool around with isn't harmless, all right? Like lust isn't harmless, but it's everywhere, I man. It's harmless on your Instagram feed. It's on, it's on like PBS now somehow. Like it's everywhere. Like it's not harmless. It's, 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 it's evil and it'll devour us if we're not careful, right? Greed, greed and stuff and materialism, like evil lurks in there. It can be dangerous. We don't want to mess around with that. Power. So much of what we've made harmless and can kind of like want to hug a little bit actually is looking to murder our souls. And so we, we need to have a sober awareness that there is evil in the world and it will be destructive. When we start to compromise or make friends with it, that's our error, right? Like, like we're going to compromise with evil. We're going to make friends with it. In reality, you don't want the tiger living in your house. It'll eat you. And so as a church, we want to have a sober awareness that we do live in a spiritual world and there are forces of evil and they're not our friends. And so not only is there the reality that Satan is opposed to God and his children, we don't want to help him by opening doors that we shouldn't open. So we want to be careful with what we're looking at. We want to be careful with what we're pursuing and what we love because evil is real. We want to know that. We want to be watchful as a church. Are we actively engaged, not just in the following of Jesus Christ, but in the awareness of what we are doing that might take us further away from that? Are there areas that we need to repent of? Are there places that we need to step out of? Doors that we need to shut? Apps that we need to take off our phone? Channels we need to not have on our television? Spending patterns that just need to be different? I don't know. Like there's a whole lot of places that the relationships at work or with friends that just like I need to put some boundaries maybe around this relationship. Like, I mean, if you're a student, like at school, it's hard because we should be friends and love everybody, right? But who, I, I, tell, I tell my oldest this all the time. Um, there's two types of people. People. There's people that you want to be a good influence on, and there's people that you want to have be good influences on you, and you need to be sure that you understand who's who. Because if the wrong people start to influence you, it's actually dangerous for your soul. 
Man, it seems extreme. I don't know. No, no, no. It's not that we hate those people. It's not that we don't love those people or we don't talk to those people, but we have an awareness that there might just need to be some boundaries around that relationship. Because there might be some of what the world would call entertaining or fun that is actually seeking to destroy us. So do we have that awareness? And so as a church, these are checkpoints that we want to pursue, right? These are these areas that we just kind of want to see. Are we healthy? Are we healthy? Are we being faithful shepherds to the flock that God's called us to? Are we clothing ourselves with humility in our interactions, in our small group, in how we're serving, and how we're loving? Are we clothed in humility? Do we consider ourselves maybe better than other people? Do we maybe have some places of pride that we should repent of? Are we actively looking to love and serve the people around us? Is that happening? How are we doing on being aware of what what evil is and, and how it's interacting with our souls and our hearts? Are we being watchful as a community for what might be destructive? These are the checkpoints we want to pursue. And here's the good news. I'm just going to warn you. We're not going to pursue these perfectly. Um, I, I love being a part of our elder team. It is very, very healthy. They're not perfect. I only know that because their wives told me. Um, <laughs> there's going to be a day that we might make a mistake, you know? As we try to clothe ourselves in humility, we all have pride and we all have blind spots and we're going to, in stress, step into that. When I am stressed out, I am not gracious and loving, okay? It's just not my natural tendency. I think most of us are like that. There's going to be times that evil gets into us a little bit. Uh, That's a broken world that we live in. And so the good news is that as we pursue these checkpoints, these checkpoints don't save us. Our performance doesn't save us. We're saved and made God's children by the blood of Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection made us God's children, made us holy and acceptable, made us beloved. God calls us his masterpiece, and it's because of what Jesus did. These checkpoints are just a joyful response to what's already happened in us. Who we are in Jesus Christ allows us to boldly pursue these checkpoints as a family of God together, saying we want to be faithful shepherds, and we're not. We're going to ask forgiveness. We're going to make adjustments, and we're going to continue to walk towards obedience. We're going to try our best to clothe ourselves in humility, and when somebody fails, we're going to pick them up, and we're going to love them. We're going to invite them in to the transforming love of God and the beauty that happens when repentance takes place. We're going to be aware of evil, and sometimes we're going to miss. But the good news is evil doesn't win. Jesus does. And so what I'm just beyond excited about is that we get to pursue these checkpoints together because this truly is a place where you're loved. This is truly a place where God is bringing people together to experience his goodness. And one of the ways he does that is by letting us do this together. One of the primary expressions of that is celebrating communion. And this is a time where we come to the table and remember physically, taste and touch the goodness that is the death and resurrection of Jesus because this is our only hope. And so as we get ready to pursue these together, let's respond in joy. Let's prepare our hearts to celebrate communion And let's examine our souls and see if there's places that we need to go to God and ask for the grace and mercy of Christ, that we can repent and be joyful followers of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us to do this, not in isolation, but but with each other. And so God, I pray that you would help us to be a place that is faithfully shepherded, not because of our strength or our good ideas or, you know, any kind of 
delusion we might have about that, but because of you and how your power is working through us. So God, help us to be faithful shepherds. Help us to clothe ourselves in humility the way that you did. Show us where that needs to happen. Give us a vision to be people that joyfully serve and connect. And God, help us to be aware of evil. Show us where we need to beware. Protect us from the schemes of the devil. God, help us to cling together as we follow you and let us have a joy that goes beyond words because of who you are and what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.